40, John chapter 6, verse 35, is where we will begin. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you that ye also have seen me and believed not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. I want to focus on verse 38, where Jesus explains a reason why he came. Now, there are a number of reasons that are given in the Word of God why Jesus came, uh, and uh, this is one of those. I think a really important one. I think they all are. Um, but this one here, in verse 38, for I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Jesus came for the Father. He came for the Father's sake. John 6, verse 38. Let's pray and we'll look at this. I pray, Lord, that you would help us as we open the word together, that you would instruct us from it. I pray that you would give us a deeper understanding and appreciation of the first coming of Jesus Christ, uh, that we might believe on him and that we might follow his example as well. I pray, Lord, that uh, you would give us a great delight in Christ and that you would uh, deepen our love for him as we look in your word. I pray that you'd help me and guide me as I preach tonight, that I would be able to open the word to your people. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said that he came to do his Father's will. So that's the point. That's the reason why he came, was to do the Father's will. Now, that does not mean that Jesus had no will of his own. It would be maybe a temptation to say that Jesus just totally uh, washed out his own will, pushed it aside, suppressed it, and only did the Father's will, but that is not true. For one thing, it was the will of Jesus Christ to do his Father's will. So he came desiring to do his Father's will. That was his will. But secondly, we see every indication tells us that Jesus also had a will of his own. And it's not as if the, Jesus gave up his will in order to do the Father's will, or as if the Father's will somehow trumped the will of Jesus Christ, suppressed the will of Jesus Christ, or squashed the will of Jesus Christ. Not at all. Nothing like that. In fact, what we see in the Bible is Jesus, he had, his, he had a will. And he did all the things that would be a mark of having a will of his own. He ate when he was hungry. He slept when he was tired. He wanted to escape pain and suffering when he anticipated it. He desired to do those things. But his will was constantly in submission to the will of God the Father. That's the key. That's the thing that we need to understand. And Jesus said this, in fact, repeatedly. John, in his gospel, especially focuses 
on all the different times where Jesus points out, insists that his highest calling, his highest purpose is to do the Father's will. And in fact, it is in his doing the Father's will that we find salvation because Jesus, remember how Paul described him, Jesus was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So Jesus is faithful to obey his Father's will. His will is in submission to his Father's will. Not Again, not suppressed by it, not crushed by it. Certainly, I think I said earlier, not overruled by it, not totally. Not so dominated by the will of the Father that he had no will of his own. He certainly did have a will of his own, but that will was brought into submission to the will of God the Father. Jesus in John 4 and verse 34 said, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. That was what sustained Jesus. That was what fed him. That is what strengthened him and gave him strength for whatever he had to do, was to do the Father's will. In John chapter 9 and verse 4, Jesus said, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. So you see there a sense of urgency to do his Father's will. Jesus was all about doing God's will. So Jesus was required throughout his lifetime then to deny himself, which again is an example to us because you and I also are called to deny ourselves. We will never deny ourselves to the extent that Jesus denied himself, but we must follow his example of self-denial. At the end of his life, Jesus was able to say something that no other man ever before or ever since has ever been able to say. Jesus alone could say this. In John chapter 17, his intercessory prayer, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. I trust that with Paul, we'll be able to say, I fought a good fight, I finished my course, I've kept the faith. But we will never finish all the work that God gave us to do. We'll never finish all of it. Jesus is exalted because he's the only human who could ever say that? You and I will leave things undone. I think that that should give us a sense of urgency to work while it's day, to work while we have the time. We're going to die with regrets, but that's not an argument for not doing anything. Or say, you know, surrender. Just say, well, I'm going to have regrets. I might as well have a lot of them. Right? 
Now, Jesus could say that he had finished the work that God gave him to do because long before Jesus entered the world, he said this, recorded by the psalmist in Psalm 40. Then said I, lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Jesus loved to do the will of God the Father. That's why it's not as if Jesus had been turned into a robot, as if the Father it was living out his life through Jesus. But Jesus had a will of his own, but his will, his delight, his love, was to do the Father's will. So the Father's will was Christ's will as well. There was that kind of complete unity of will between the Father and the Son. The author of Hebrews referred to what I just read in Psalm 40. And he quoted Jesus as saying this when he entered the world. Hebrews 10 verse 5, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O my God. So <clears throat> this, again, is Jesus in his delight to come to the, this earth. He delighted in it. He loved coming to this earth. He loved to do his Father's will. And Jesus knew that it was his Father's will that he would come to this earth. Jesus demonstrated the depth of his commitment to do the Father's will. And the place, I don't know, uh, probably we could point to several significant places where we see very clearly Christ's commitment to do the Father's will, despite the cost himself. But I don't know of a place where we see it more clearly and vividly than in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus prayed, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus said, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here, here and watch. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground, and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Now there you see, there you see that Jesus had a will of his own. But... That's not where he stopped praying. He said, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. So there, again, see that the will of Christ is to do the will of the Father. Despite the pain, despite the suffering, despite what he would be called upon to endure. When Jesus was faced with that moment, when he came face to face with that moment that he had come, what he came to do, he didn't come to be born in a manger, 
He didn't come to uh, be raised by a Galilean carpenter. He came to die on the cross. And when he came up against that event, we see that Jesus' will was gladly given over to the Father. In fact, we can say with certainty that it was gladly given over to the Father because the Bible tells us that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. So Jesus counted it all joy to suffer for us. Jesus came to please the Father and to do his will. It was the Father's will that Jesus should come to this earth, and so Jesus came to this earth. The Father ordained Jesus and sent him to come. He had a particular purpose in mind. He intended that Jesus would absorb his wrath against sin so that he could forgive sinners and display his love. Jesus had a deep commitment to fulfilling God's will, a commitment that involved several other, or maybe we should say included, several other commitments. So I want to look at the other commitments that are part of or underneath this big picture, Christ's desire to fulfill his Father's will. All right, I want to consider uh, what in, is included in that. First of all, Jesus was committed to pleasing the Father. Okay, so part of his desire to do the Father's will was that he wanted to please the Father. And this requirement, the, 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 the desire, the longing Jesus had to please the Father meant that Jesus must suffer and bleed and die. Because the Bible tells us in Isaiah 53 and verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This is a, a Bible truth for us to understand. Because Jesus was not committed to do what was easy to do. Remember, Jesus calls us to come to him, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, he said. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. He said, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light, right? But at the same time, the yoke, the burden that God placed on Jesus was not easy at all. And we know that because Jesus, who was almighty, trembled at the idea of doing that. It was a painful commitment. And the extent of it, of what Jesus committed to do was to go all the way to the cross. He was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Yes. Right. So this is, this is what the Bible is telling us here. He did this without complaint. 
He didn't pour him out. He didn't, he didn't talk about, you know how we are. We're about to take on something really tough, really difficult, and we just wanna make sure that people around us know that this is gonna be really tough and really difficult, right? Not Jesus, not Jesus. The Bible tells us that God's purpose and grace was given us in Christ before the world was formed. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Right? So this is God's eternal purpose. It was no surprise to Jesus. He wasn't, it's not like God said, I want you to go to earth. I want you to be born as a baby. I'll tell you later what you're going to do. All right. Now, of course, as a man, I believe that there was a slow unfolding in the life of Jesus Christ as he matured from baby to toddler to um, little boy to teenager into adulthood. I think that there was a slow unveiling of God's purpose. So I don't believe that now Jesus as a man was born with complete knowledge. I, I, I think that he was a baby, like a regular baby. And I think he had to learn how to walk and talk and all of those things. But I'm saying that before Jesus entered the world, he knew why he would be entering the world. It was not a secret. It was not a surprise. It was not kept from him. It was, in fact, a part of the eternal decrees of the Godhead. He was working all things according to the counsel of his own will. He not only knew that this was the reason he was coming into our world, but he was glad to embrace it as well. <clears throat> this gives a different perspective of the suffering of the Lord Jesus. Right? Um, we tend to think of it in terms of the substitution, the work of redemption, the saving sacrifice made for sinners. Uh, and certainly Christ's suffering was in our place, suffering the wrath of God against sin. But just as certainly Christ's suffering is an act, a beautiful act of submission and obedience to the will of the Father. It most certainly is. And the Bible certainly recognizes this Sweet surrender is part of the beauty of Christ's death. Ephesians 5 and verse 2 says, And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. What was the sweetness of the aroma of Christ's death? It was his glad submission. This happy submission to the Father's will. The second thing that is included in this purpose, Christ's intention to obey the Father's will, the second thing that's included in that is that Jesus was committed to absorb the wrath of God against our sin. Jesus committed to absorbing that. So not just to suffer and bleed and die, but to absorb God's wrath against sin. Now, 
you know, you pause and think, all right, if, um, if, if you didn't do it, but you get accused of doing it, and people are angry at you as if you had done it, that seems very unfair. But if you voluntarily took responsibility for it, even though you didn't do it and everyone knows you didn't do it, and the judge is angry when he sentences you, that seems even more unfair. And that is exactly what Jesus did on our behalf. Jesus is the place, and in fact, Jesus on the cross is the place where the righteous wrath of God against sin met up with the self-giving love of God for mankind. God's wrath against sin and God's love for men met at the cross. Jesus of Nazareth is the place that the psalmist spoke of in Psalm 85 verse 10, the place where righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Now God is a holy God and a mighty sovereign and it, sin is exceeding sinful. So God refuses to come to terms at all with our sin. He will not, he will not come to terms with our sin. Someone said that the seriousness of an insult rises with the dignity of the one insulted. You insult a classmate, that's not nearly as serious as insulting your teacher, right? Uh, it's not to say that it's okay to insult your classmate, all right? Insult uh, the homeless guy holding up the cardboard sign at the grocery store parking lot, all right? Um, and that, you shouldn't do that, all right? But it's far more serious to insult the police officer who pulls you over, all right? So there is a rank, yes. And there, it, it's a serious thing to insult, especially one who is of great dignity. <clears throat> to um, insult God, who is King of kings and Lord of lords and who has infinitely more worth than any individual human being, yes. is the greatest of all sins. And our repeated insults towards God in the form of disregard for his commandments, our rejection of his love, our failure to respond to his love by loving him back, those are terrible insults. It's rightly been described as treason. That the one, your benefactor, you have rejected your benefactor and spurned him. And that's why justice demands that sin be paid for and justice is not dispassionate. Justice is not unemotional about it. It's not stoical about it. It is not apathetic about it. Justice is rightly indignant 
about our wickedness and about our sin. So that being said, we need to understand that God's wrath against sin is just, it is righteous wrath. And it is wrath that is owed to us. God's justice required that sin be paid for. And God in his kindness sent his son Jesus Christ to bear his wrath against our sin. <clears throat> there was no other qualified candidate, and so it must be Jesus, or else all of humanity would be destroyed because sinful humanity cannot bear the wrath of God against sin. There was no other recourse without God laying aside his holiness and being unjust in dealing with sin. And God will not be unjust. But on the other hand, standing against the holy wrath of God against sin, you have the holy love of God for sinners. God's love required that his son die in our place as our substitute. It was God's love that made Jesus Christ willing to suffer and die. It was God's love. And since God is both perfectly just and perfectly loving, since there's no contradiction between the justice, the holy justice of God and the holy love of God, therefore, Jesus met God the Father's holy demands in order for you and me to be forgiven. Galatians 3 and verse 13, that Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Romans 3, 25, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Notice that, that God set forth Jesus to be this propitiation. Propitiation, old word, really there's not a, uh, a synonym that can fully capture that word. But it essentially means the sacrifice that satisfies God's demands for justice. And God himself set Jesus forth to be that sacrifice that would satisfy his demands for justice. And notice the end of Romans 3 and verse 25 tells us that this is all done through the forbearance of God. So God was being forbearing with you by sending Jesus to be the substitute. 1 John 4 and verse 10, Herein is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us, and has sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So God sent Jesus to be that sacrifice that satisfies his justice. God's wrath is removed then when a qualified candidate takes the punishment for sin in the place of the sinner. This is the gospel here. We have a qualified candidate who 
is qualified to be our substitute. What qualifies Jesus is, number one, that he's a man. And number two, that he himself is not under the wrath of God. If he were not a man, he could not represent men and bear their sin. If he had sin of his own, then God's wrath would include him and his own sin. So it's important that we understand this. God has provided himself with a qualified candidate. That's what he meant in Hebrews 10 when he said, Sacrifice and offerings for sin thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared. The body is the body of Jesus Christ, which God sent to bear his wrath. That's the point here. So the Lamb of God is the one who takes away the sin of the world. As our substitute, Jesus does not cancel the wrath of God. He doesn't just turn it back. We need to understand that. Jesus doesn't turn back the wrath of God. Jesus bears the wrath of God. The fullness of God's wrath against sin was poured out on Jesus. Jesus didn't repel it, didn't shield us from it, except by bearing it himself. Jesus absorbed that wrath. He took it upon himself and therefore diverted God's wrath from us. And the wrath of God was poured out in full, was not held back, was not restrained. There was not a drop of the wrath of God that was spared when God dealt with our sin in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus absorbed the full wrath of God and the death of Jesus has in fact satisfied God's wrath so that God has been sufficiently just in punishing Jesus in our place for our sins. Now there's a third thing. Jesus came so that God could be just and the justifier so that God's wrath against sin would be absorbed without sinners being destroyed. But there's a third thing that's included in this part of why Jesus came. He came to do the Father's will. It was the Father's will. Jesus wanted to please the Father, and it pleased the Father to bruise him. Jesus came to bear the wrath of God against our sin. And then the third thing is that Jesus was committed also to reveal God's love for sinners. He came, in fact, this is part of him doing the Father's will, because the Father was he desired a substitute who could bear his wrath because God desired to display to the world his love. This is, this is another important thing for us to understand, that all of this, 
All of this was done because God loves us. And he didn't want to have that like secret love, like he'd be, you know, off in the bushes pining away for us. He did it as a display of his love to convince us of it. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's amazing to think of the love of God in light of the justice of God. It would be one thing if we were lovely. If we were, if we loved God back. But, you know, honestly, we, we despise him. We insult him, as we spoke of earlier. We, we ignore him, his claims on us. <clears throat> the kind of love God showed the world was not sentimental love. It was sacrificial love. And that's an important truth, especially during a time of year that has become more sensible than, um, I'm sorry, sentimental than sensible. Jesus didn't enter our world to give you warm feelings by a cozy fire looking at your twinkling lights on the street. Jesus came to make the ultimate sacrifice for our sins because he had a higher purpose. It wasn't just to absorb God's wrath, but also to reveal to you the depths of God's love for you. He wanted you to see it. He came to make the ultimate sacrifice for our sins in order to reveal the depths of God's love for us. And this is what Paul means in Romans 5, verse 8. That God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus came to this world to reveal to us the riches of God's love for the world. God's love for us can only or should be understood in light of his love for his son. He loves us really as an extension of his son because the Bible describes those who are saved as being in Christ. And Christ is in you also. So that mutual indwelling of you and Christ and Christ in you means that God's love for his son includes you. And the love that God has for his son, that's the amazing thing. Uh, you know, I've said many times, a part of my life story and testimony is that when I was a little boy, my mom remarried, and the man she remarried adopted me. And he, with my mom, had two kids. But when those two kids came, there was no diminishing of his love for me. Even though I was not his natural son, his son by birth, he, he loved me as much as he loved his birth son. He loved his birth He just added his birth son and encompassed all that with his love. And I say that because it's unusual in our world. I think most of you can imagine that you would love your natural children more than you would love children you adopted. But this is what God does for us 
is that the love that he gives to Christ is the love that he gives to us as well. <clears throat> this love was announced to the world twice during the life of Christ, twice. God announced his love for his son. Some said that it thundered. The love of the Father for the Son is incomprehensible. It is infinite. It is unchangeable, unwavering. It's such a powerful thing that the Bible can only describe God not as loving, but as love. And we have known and believed the love that God had to us God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. That's what God wants you to know. It's a powerful bond of love between the Father and the Son, unbreakable. In fact, if we're to understand the holiness of God, we have to understand it in terms of his love. That the reason three can be one and indivisible is because God is love. So this is the key. We're taught to understand the Father's love for us in terms of the Father's love for his Son. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. In Jesus Christ, God loves his believing children with this same incomprehensible, infinite, and unchangeable love. And this is what Paul is saying at the end of Romans chapter 8. These verses were um, my grandfather and my father's, my natural father's favorite verses in all the world. Romans 8 verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? You see how Paul ties the sacrifice of Christ to the love of the Father for us? <coughs> Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So, again, 
We understand God's love for us by understanding his unbreakable bond of love with Jesus and understanding that he has drawn us in. He demonstrated that love because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He provided so that he could love us by sending his son to be the savior of the world. But the only way that Jesus could be the savior of the world was to bear his wrath against sin. And it was an awful, awful thing when Jesus bore the wrath of God against our sin. Jesus did that because he delighted to do God's will. So it all traces back to that heart of obedience that Jesus became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And for this reason, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that's above every name. So all of this to say, Jesus came to do his Father's will, and it was his Father's will that the gospel would be preached to us. Jesus was committed to unleash the power of God in the gospel, to set loose God's power in the gospel. This is what Jesus said in the text that we read. If you look again at John 6, at, look at verse 38. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus, according to Romans 1, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So it was the resurrection that proclaimed, powerfully proclaimed, declared that Jesus is the Son of God. The Bible makes, it, makes no secret about this. The good news of the gospel is God's power to save the world through Jesus Christ. Paul said in Romans 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So this historic event of Jesus dying on the cross, being buried, rising from the dead, that is the power of God to salvation. That is the gospel, and the gospel is the power of God to salvation. Jesus made no secret about it because of his death on the cross. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. So go ye therefore and teach all nations. So because of his power unleashed by his death, burial, and resurrection, 
We, therefore, are to go and preach the gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is the central story of the gospels. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, defines it, in fact, as that event. So God sends us as ambassadors for Christ, sent out to proclaim the good news. And as we do, God works mightily through the message of the gospel to bring men to faith and repentance. Now this, again, this is a wonderful thing. All right, so we trace it all back. Jesus doing God the Father's will, delighting to do it, rejoicing, right? Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. God, in pouring out his wrath on Jesus, pleased God to bruise him. He poured out his wrath. He made his soul an offering for sin. And in doing so, God was demonstrating his love for us. And that, when we preach it, is powerful to bring to life dead sinners, spiritually dead sinners. This is the glory of what God has done for you and for me. The power of the gospel is set loose among us. We see its effect, in fact, in the lives of sinners who have been converted by that gospel. Paul said in first, I'm sorry, I don't want to read that. I want to read this, 2 Corinthians 5. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. You see how Paul ties these together? That God was doing this, right? God sent his son to be the savior of the world, really as an extension of himself, because Jesus is God, right? So Jesus is God with us. Jesus enters into human flesh and becomes a man to die, to bear that, uh, that wrath of God against our sin, to absorb it. So that since he absorbed the wrath of God, uh, there's no wrath for you. So that you can be forgiven. And Paul connects this. All things are of God. He has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. And he has sent us also to be his ambassadors. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus came to do God's will. It was God's will that sinners would be saved. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So that this could happen, 
God sent his son to pay the full price for our sin. Okay, so God made the provision. We were helpless. We could not do anything. God sent his son to bear his wrath so that he could be just, so that he could include us in his love. All power is given to him in heaven and in earth. Therefore, he sends us out as ambassadors, calling the world to be reconciled to God. By fulfilling the Father's will, Jesus resolves the conflict between us and God, obliterating the barrier between us. See, that's the thing about the law. The law is good because it demonstrates, it displays really the holiness of God. All right, but the law was an enemy to us because we're sinners. The law serves as a barricade to keep us back from God. And Jesus obliterated the barricade, not by disposing of the law, but by taking the condemnation that the law pronounces on the sinner, taking that on himself so that we can be forgiven, not condemned for our sin. That's why Jesus came. He came <coughs> for the Father. Isn't that good?